Thank you, Daphne. Well, I wonder whether you've heard of the Ig Nobel Prizes. Anyone heard of the Ig Nobel Prizes? No? They're a mock version of the infamous Nobel Prizes given to the, uh, those who've achieved really great things in life. But the Ig Nobel Prizes actually celebrate ridiculous attempts of people who have toiled and endured enthusiastically, but to no discernible benefit. They pour riches and effort into their research, but there's no real impact. There's no greater good for the common cause of humanity. Someone was awarded the Ig Nobel Prize, for example, for explaining the physics of why toast will always fall butter side down. Or another favorite was someone who finally, their research finally gave a reason for the question on everyone's mind. Why is wombat poo cube-shaped? Well, we've been tracking the journey of an early Christian called Paul and his companions. <laughs> Neat link, eh? Uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. We've been tracking this, the story of an early Christian called Paul and his companions. Up in the top left there is where we are, um, through, through what is modern-day Greece. And he's just been evicted from a town called Philippi, where his friends and, him and his friends were dragged before city officials, stripped and beaten with rods, and then imprisoned without trial. The reason? They, they shared the, the Christian hope that they have, the Christian message is the cause of all this. And now they travel 100 miles to Thessalonica, a great harbor city in the northern part of Greece. And many would say they now do something which would be deserving of their own Ig Nobel Prize. Paul and his friends repeat that same message that got them beaten and mocked and imprisoned in Philippi. Surely this is the height of stupidity and uselessness. Well, let's read together what happens. We're going to invite Andrew up to come and read to us. Um, we're going to read what happens in Thessalonica and then another city called Berea. Now, as Andrew reads, try and spot the similarities and the differences between these two cities that we're looking at. Over to you, Andrew. Thanks. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men have caused trouble all over the world, and they've now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. They, then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day 
to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Thank you, Andrew. So as we look at these two cities, let's focus on two similarities. First, the method. Trust in God's powerful word. Paul's custom in both these cities was to go straight to the synagogue. Have a look at verse 2 with me. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue. And verse 10, this is in Berea. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. So this synagogue is the assembly place for expat Jews and some others that he calls God-fearers, who are non-Jews with some link to the synagogue. Now, what does he do there? Let's read verse 2 again. As was his custom. Sorry, I'm just having some mic issues. Is that okay? Yeah, great. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. So Paul was eager to tell the message of Jesus to those who are waiting for the Messiah. Now that, that word Messiah is the Hebrew title of God's promised king throughout the whole Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament in, in our Bibles. And in Greek, that word Messiah is translated as Christ. So that's where we get Jesus Christ from. It's not a surname, it's a title. And, and the Messiah is the one that the Jewish believers were, and actually the Jewish believers are today waiting for. So Paul goes to the synagogues and proclaims this message. And notice what it is that Paul is actually proclaiming in these verses, in these synagogues. The Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus, I am proclaiming to you, is the Messiah. So he's telling these people, look at Jesus. He is the one that you've been expecting, the long-awaited promised Messiah. This Jesus, he's the Messiah, the Christ. And look at the reason, look at the basis for his message. He reasons with them from the scriptures. Now he's talking here about the Old Testament scriptures, the, prom the promises and historical events that were recorded there that all point to Jesus Christ. And if you've never taken time to look at that for yourself, that would be a really worthwhile thing doing. It's amazing how ev on every page there's, there's some um, link in some way, I think, to, to looking forward to Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ fulfilled. It'd be a great thing to do. Now in Berea, we learn that Paul was, in verse 13, he was preaching the word of God. And same thing here, he doesn't beat around the bush. No, he proclaims the simple gospel, that Christ suffered and died on the cross to pay the punishment that we all deserve and restore relationship with God. And then he rose again from the dead to prove it. Now, now Paul knew these Jews were waiting for this promised Messiah, and so he tells them straight up, put your faith in him by using their scriptures. Now, Paul was not ashamed of the Bible. He used the Old Testament scriptures here to show that these people needed to trust Christ. Our society tells us that we can move on from the Bible, 
it's just a dusty old book that contains the odd pearl of wisdom, maybe some nice literature, but really it's just a deluge of boring laws and amusing fairy tales. There's an interesting study by the Bible Society that's published a few years ago that shows that over half of UK parents thought that storylines from the Hunger Games were part of the Bible. A third thought the plot of Harry Potter was based in the Bible, and over a quarter believed that Superman's story was a biblical one. To think the Bible is worth reading as true is laughable. To gather weekly to hear it preached is pitiful. To base your life on its message, well, that's idiotic. It's as if society says Christians deserve their own Ig Nobel Prize for putting so much into this book and following it with so little in return, apparently. We've moved on from the Bible. Our society says that the Bible is an outdated book of fairy tales. And Paul instead says, no, it's living and active. And that's why he later writes to some other Christians, we do not distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's sight, to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, Paul didn't just write these things in letters. We see here that he lived it out. He lived out his conviction that God's word, the Bible, is powerful. In both Thessalonica and Berea, he proclaims it. He sets forth the truth plainly. And data released this week, I was just reading uh, yesterday, shows that after having Christian parents, reading the Bible is the most common reason that someone becomes a Christian in the UK. So it's important. Our first application flows from this idea. It's be like Paul or be Pauline. Be like Paul or be Pauline. So first, to teachers of the Bible, whether that's to our children and youth or to the wider church family or in another setting completely, teachers of the Bible, this applies to us. I was working on a text for this talk and a friend asked me, how do you go about writing it? And I told them that I tried to understand the Bible, and the, the passage I'm, I'm looking at in its context, and see how it applies to us today, the principles, how they apply. And he, he exclaimed, oh, you're one of those preachers who uses the Bible. I, I was quite shaken, shaken aback by that. I thought, that, that, that's, that's strange, that's a surprise to you. Well, many think the role of a Bible teacher is to spend the week before a talk or a study searching the depths of their hearts for a wise advice to give to their listeners. Now, you probably guess that I don't have much life experience or wisdom. I'm 30 years old, and I still struggle to cook a non-microwavable meal. So Sarah, thank you, Sarah, for looking after me on that front. And even that, actually, is sometimes hard. Um, anyway, uh, it would be a problem if I came here with the attitude that I had something to teach you, to give you. Many people here have much more experience than me. If I try and persuade you to be more like me, I don't know why you'd be here. I have nothing. But God does have something to teach us every time we read his word. And teachers must teach with the same attitude that Paul does here. So reason with them from the scriptures in verse 2. We must be Pauline. But this doesn't just apply to teachers. It impacts actually every follower of Jesus in many ways. Particularly in the context of this passage, sharing faith with other people. When my friends ask me questions about my faith, my go-to resource is often my own thoughts and experiences rather than opening the word of God with them. Now, there is a place for that, definitely. But if the Bible is truly powerful and authoritative, then surely I should point them to Jesus in his word rather than my own words. Do I really trust it to do the work? 
I was struck by this a few years ago when someone challenged me to read the Bible with non-Christian friends. I thought that idea was ludicrous. Why on earth would they want to read that? I could just share the gospel in a culturally relevant and sensitive way. Yes, I could do that. But that didn't seem to be very much fruit. So I, um, a few years ago, I tried opening the Bible with a few friends uh, using Uncover, that resource that was mentioned earlier in the notices. And let me tell you, it transformed the conversations I was having with these people. And that's the method Paul is using here. He's opening up God's word with them in his evangelism to the Thessalonians and to the Bereans. He proclaims it. And it's not just from a pulpit. Look at the different words that he uses here in these verses. Verse 2 and 3. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. He explained, he proved, he proclaimed. And that's the pattern he sets for us in sharing our faith. Trusting in the power of God's word in all these different ways. You don't need to be able to give eight proofs of God that God's existent to be able to share your faith. Maybe you do. Maybe you want to do that. But you don't need to. All you need to do is just open up God's word and show people the hope that Jesus offers. That's what Paul did. We should be Pauline. So we've looked at that first similarity. Paul's method is to trust in God's powerful word. The second similarity, I think, is the result. We can make excuses or examine. We've seen that Paul was utterly convinced of God's word being powerful. So what are the results here? Let's return to those comparisons in this account. In both cities, you see a mixed picture. Look, in Thessalonica, we see in verse 4, some of the Jews were persuaded, verse 5, but others were jealous. In Berea, verse 12, many, but not all, of them believed. And those same Thessalonian Jews came and sparked trouble. In verse 13, it says they were agitating the crowds and stirring them up. So overall, Luke tells us there are two reactions to this powerful word being proclaimed. Excuse yourself or examine the evidence. Firstly, excuse yourself. These Thessalonians accuse Paul and his companions of being troublemakers. They, they riot. They make accusations of treason against Caesar because Paul is apparently saying there's, there's another king and we shouldn't follow Caesar. But this is just an excuse. See their real motive in verse 5? But other Jews were, but, but other Jews were jealous. Jealousy breeds false accusation. And that's the same accusation that um, was made against Jesus in his trial, wasn't it? They accused him of treason against Caesar because he was claiming to be the king of the Jews, the Messiah. But again, it's simply an excuse. The people don't like the claims of Jesus and they, they don't engage with him. So they excuse themselves by joining this rioting mob, falsely accusing Paul and his companions. And that results in suffering for Paul and for Jason, his friend. Now, the gospel message is offensive. It says that each of us has fallen short and we will face justice for all that we have said, thought, and done that goes against God's ways, unless we put our trust in Jesus. Now, hearing that is not comfortable, is it? And people understandably don't like it. So sometimes they mock, accuse, and imprison those who share their hope, like Jason and like Jesus. It still happens today. And we must expect opposition ourselves. When we proclaim the gospel faithfully, one expected outcome is resistance. And sometimes people's excuses are hiding some other concern with Christianity. For example, it might be some people think the Bible is contradictory. A third of people in one UK study say that's, that's the case. The Bible is contradictory. Perhaps they actually just need a Christian friend to come alongside them and, and read it with them and show them that's not, not the case. 
Or maybe some people think the Bible's anti-women. 15 in 100 people thought this in that study. But Luke and Acts are a great place to start to show people that this simply isn't the case. Even this passage that we've seen here today contains amazing uh, prominence of women uh, in, compared to the contemporary accounts, the texts of that time. There's a great mention of women that just wouldn't be expected in the time and culture. This is revolutionary, friends. There are plenty of other excuses uh, that people might use to avoid engaging with the Bible, but that's one excuse. When, the, when people are presented with the Bible and its, and its offer, they might excuse themselves. The second option is to examine. The alternative reaction is exemplified here by the Berean Jews when they hear the word of God proclaimed. L- read with me in verse 11. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. They examined the scriptures daily. They mentally engaged. And that's what it means here to be of noble character. They were open-minded enough to be willing to explore or examine. Now, they weren't gullible. They weren't thinking in their approach. They wanted to weigh it up. They realized the claims made in the Bible were life-changing if they're true. And so they actually had the intellectual credibility to properly engage with the ideas and wrestle with them rather than just excusing them based on what their prior beliefs were. So they examined it. There's two responses here, to excuse or to examine. And they're helpful for us to consider. Because our second application is to be Berean. We've said to be Pauline, but we also want to be Berean as we share or as we hear the Bible for ourselves. First of all, on sharing, we shouldn't be discouraged by lack of positive response to sharing our faith. We should expect excuses and persecution, even if, even because Paul had them, Jesus had them even. Our confidence is not in our power to speak, but in the one who gives us his message to communicate. This great truth allows us to be bold, knowing that God uses his word powerfully as he pleases. And equally, we can trust that God will work in some to help them eagerly examine his word like these Bereans. We should be Bereans. So we talked about sharing. What about hearing? Well, wherever you're at in your journey here today, it's really wonderful you're here. Thank you for being here and for listening, whether that's online, in person, or on catch-up. What does it mean to eagerly examine the word? Well, it might mean read it carefully, or ask questions, sharpen each other with it, discuss the talk after the gathering, or maybe over Sunday lunch. Bounce off each other. Don't just be a passenger in small groups if you go along. Maybe go along to small groups and engage with things there. Ask questions of the text when you read it. Wrestle with it. I wonder if all that sounds a bit unspiritual, too, too rational. Well, no, the biblical pattern is careful consideration. Give time and thought to the word that God speaks to us as we sit under its authority. The noble thing here is to examine God's word. Keep investigating it. Talk about it. Wrestle with it. If it's true, it's of ultimate importance. And this, says Luke in verse 11, is the more noble thing. Be Berean. So what's the result when people actually listen to and examine God's word? People start to follow Jesus from all different backgrounds. Verse 4, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did, quite a, lot, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Verse 12, in Berea, as a result of the word being examined, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. 
the word has gone to work and it produces fruit in all Christ. The book of Acts often speaks of gospel advance when the word is proclaimed. And this is exactly what we see here. This is how the gospel advances, both in first century Berea and Thessalonica and in 21st century Edinburgh. So we must be Bereans. And even in the midst of difficulties that Paul and his companions and his team faced, there is gospel fruit. Let me read a bit about that a few pages later in Acts 20. Paul was accompanied by Sopatus, son of Pyrrhus, from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, and others that he goes on to talk about here. And we read later that Aristarchus was in a prisoner with Paul on his way to Rome. Paul then goes on to write at least two letters to the Thessalonian church. A whole church rose up in the midst of this, perhaps because of this opposition. Gospel opposition does not prevent gospel fruit. So as we come to a close, we've seen that God's word is powerful. Those who choose to examine it can be transformed. And that's a truly incredible process. And God invites each one of us here today to be involved in it, whether that's someone who's engaging with things for the first time, the second time, the third time, or maybe someone who's been around this thing for a while and actually needs a bit of a reset on our approach to God's word. We're going to have a few minutes now just to reflect on what we've looked at this morning. Why not think about how this applies to you? So we're going to spend a minute or two just by ourselves with some background music, just thinking what this might mean. And then I'm going to ask you to turn to each other after that and um, uh, share what, what you think this might mean for you. Um, or if that's not what you want to do, you can also just sit, talk about your experience with the Bible so far in your life, whether, there's been, whether you've had any uh, interaction with it at all. So just a little summary that you might want to be thinking about. We, we've said we want to be Pauline. I wonder if you could share God's word with someone this week ahead, a colleague, a friend, a family member. Perhaps that means picking up something like the word one-to-one, which is a resource at the back you can click away and give that to a friend or you read it with a friend. Um, or perhaps it means giving someone a Bible to read. If you want to take one of these Bibles and give it to a friend who doesn't have one, we'd love you to use it for that purpose. Perhaps it means inviting someone to join Uncover, the thing that was mentioned earlier, happening whenever it suits them. Helping them to engage with Jesus and his word. Or maybe it's asking someone to come to church with you. Trusting in God's word to work. We've also said we want to be Berean. And perhaps that means nobly wrestling with the account of Jesus for yourself. Asking difficult questions, but important questions, as you examine him. It might mean signing up to uncover yourself. Perhaps it means continuing to come along to church and listening to the Bible, sitting under it and engaging with it that way. Perhaps it means asking thoughtful questions on Slido on a Sunday. Perhaps it means checking out our online pre-Sunday video with the teaser and thinking about the passage in advance before, before we come to church. Or maybe it means looking at the footnotes video we post after the gathering to think about some of the more detailed explanations of some of the bits we didn't get to on a Sunday morning. Or perhaps it means starting or restarting a habit of regular Bible reading for yourself. It may look like something completely different, but those are just some starting ideas. Take a minute or two, and we're going to have some background music. Just sit by yourself and have a think, uh, and then I'll direct you to, to talk to someone next to you uh, in a few minutes.